Welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, a pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. Good morning. I'm grateful to um, be a part of this, what we're doing together. Um, It's been a pleasure for me, and I consider it an honor to work closely with Joe and Alyssa and the leadership team here at Central City. And uh, I'm sure uh, Joe has said this. He said it to the St. Luke's congregation. If there's ever a glitch ever a word that hurts feelings, anything, let us know. Um, We're pretty fired up about uh, being advocates for making this work, so please let us know what's going on. I'm also really grateful to uh, be a United Methodist pastor for over 25 years. Now, there have been times when I get a little sick of the bureaucracy, but all in all, God has been good (laughs) working through um, this church that we call the United Methodist Church. And I'm also very thankful that Joe asked me to share a testimony. Now, he said a brief testimony, but I don't promise that. But I I think, you know, we'll we'll see what we can do with that. Transitioning from the world of work into um, a situation where both of you, as a spouse team, uh, are in full-time ministry, um, can be tricky. But I will tell you that it is incredibly affirming, especially when it comes to how God shows up. And the truth is, you can't make this transition without God showing up. In my testimony, the first thing I'd like to share is, um, I was called to preach, and I interpreted that to be a preacher uh, at 13 years old. And um, those first two years as a teenage evangelist, I'll share that with you some other time. But uh, um, I ran from that calling for 30 years. And I think some of you could probably relate to that. You know, you know how you get committed to goals of the world and they're wonderful goals. Um, I got my Ph.D. at 29. That was something I always wanted to do. I have three wonderful children, and now through marrying uh, Jill, I have five wonderful children. Um, I actually used to make money. Um, But the transition from me being a marketing director for an independent living, nursing home, assisted living companies, a number of them, and Jill being a nursing home administrator, and then higher-ups, you know, one of the supervisors. Going from that to being a pastor and a pastor's wife um, was interesting. 
Um, the first obstacle that at least I had in the back of my mind was that um, I couldn't do this unless Jill was all in. My first wife, and Jill and I both were previously married, my first wife was ambitious. She had set goals, and um, yeah, being a pastor's wife was not one of those goals. And I can't blame it on her. You know, I, were, I was pursuing the gold rings as well. But um, I had a job. I moved around. The thing about nursing homes, you change the flag about every month. Somebody else owns your company, you know. And um, I had three-state region. I was going to meet my new uh, vice president for operations from California. His name was Kelly. And he was going to meet with us in... Uh, Cincinnati, we were all down there for this big meeting, had us all in a circle, and he said, if money were not an object, what would you really want to do? Now, my colleagues um, were careful in their response. Every single one of them said, I'd like to do exactly what I'm doing right now for more money. That was basically what they said. When it got around to me just out of nowhere... I said, you know, I would like to be a pastor in an urban church serving the poor. And uh, as you can imagine, some of my colleagues, because I was the marketing director, the ultimate flim-flam guy. They just were shocked. I come home and I say to Jill, I said, you won't believe what I said to my new boss today. And uh, she said, well, I was wondering... When you were going to get around to it, I said I'm all in. Matter of fact, I'm thinking about making some changes myself. Now, this blew me away, and it came from God because even later, Jill says, "I don't know where that came from. I don't know what in the world was going on." Uh, God put those words there, but they were in her heart. But I think God knew I had to hear them. To take the next step. So really the next week I went back to Cincinnati and told him, I said, I'd like to go for a half time so I can enroll in seminary and you know the pep talk, I need you 150%. So that was the end of that career. Um, second obstacle was um, how in the world are we financially going to make this adjustment? And you know, I know some of you are considering a call to ministry and when you start looking at the practical realities of it, it's really scary. My son's a police officer, and, and his wife, uh, we call her Rocky, because we have another Nicole. Rocky is actually going through all the mechanisms to get ordained as a Methodist pastor. And they were telling me the other day she has a chance for her first call, her first uh, church. And I was given all these negative things. I said, now, be careful. You've got to take care of your retirement. You've got to make sure you have I mean, Ryan has all that as a police officer. But she's going, I, I didn't choose to serve Jesus to make money. I said, neither did I. But you probably ought to have some practical sense, and I think Jesus expects you to have practical sense. Well, we go to North Broadway Church, our, uh, our home church, and I see um, Ned Dwyer, the president of Methesco up there, and I've already been talking to them about this is going to take about seven years for me to get through seminary. I'm going to have to find some part-time job. I was a certified teacher, so I thought I might be a you know, substitute teacher or something. I don't know. Uh, but I knew it would take forever if I was going to do it that way. 
Well, I get, we get called up to the front of the church, and uh, Ned announces I have a full-ride scholarship for Methesco. Didn't have to pay a nickel for my seminary training. And for any of you that have thought about the cost of that, it's ridiculous. And I'm sure it's more now than it was 27 years ago or whenever it was I was there. Uh, I was just blown away. I didn't even remember applying for the grant, but knowing me, I'm sure I applied for every single grant. So that obstacle was just overcome like a puff of smoke. And then we got talking about the fact that we lived in a big suburban house in Ken Burbia, which is right off Kenny Road near OSU uh, Golf Course. And uh, I said, Jill, we can't keep this house. There's no way we can maintain this house payment. And she said, well, why? I said, because the bank is going to sell this house if we don't sell this house. So we put it on the market in 45 days, 40 days. Somebody, a professor that went to Ohio State from Africa, just came in with a bag of money and gave it to the bank and bought this house. We were out of there faster than this realtor had said she had ever seen. And we moved in a little place we called the furniture store because it was so tiny. We had so much furniture that you couldn't even navigate around over on Cleveland Avenue, really Dresden Road was the, the name of this little thing. So it was just amazing. And another you know, silly thing, in a way, it's not silly to Jill. Jill had a 1964 red Corvette convertible. Every time we took it out of the garage, somebody would run up and drive up to us and open the windows and try to buy it. Well, we needed it. So we said to one of those guys, we'll sell you the car. They show up with, with Kroger bags full of small bills and buy this Corvette from us. Now, the truth is, we had a one-car garage in this move, so we couldn't have kept it under the, in a garage anyway. But it was a godsend. It was wonderful, and we had a lot of fun with that little car when we were in the world. Uh, <laughs> Oh, the last obstacle, and it still is an obstacle because I didn't really fulfill it, was uh, um, I was a divorced parent, single dad, had kids on the weekends, um, and I promised to help them uh, cover their college experiences. And this commitment to this kind of transition, the biggest sacrifice would have been them, I thought. I was in a prayer and share group because I've done Kairos prison ministry for years. We're at North Broadway. They still meet Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. And I was in there, and, you know, we pray for each other. And I was talking about the fact that I'm, I tell you, God keeps showing up, but I'm, I'm struggling with how I can make this happen. Uh, I'm particularly guilty about what I could do to help the kids. And a week or so later, a good friend of mine, Tom, he said to Judy and I, his wife, he said, we've been praying about how we can help you and Jill uh, respond to your call. I'm an orthodontist. He's actually a, kind of a famous orthodontist, lives over in, in Clintonville. He says, I'm going to take care of your kids' teeth, whatever they might need. Now, those of you parents that have teenage kids or even elementary kids, back then that was a $30,000 commitment. Because my kids have teeth like my teeth. So they needed some work, and now they're perfectly straight. 
Where does that come from? It comes, it comes from God working through people. Now, I say this because I know two or three of you are right at that cusp of saying, you know, I want to shuck it and go all the way for Jesus. And, and there are some practical questions that come up. And all I want to share in my testimony is you literally can give it to God. Now, I'm a crusty old pastor, and I'm, I'm not one of these fluffy guys that just says that lightly. Um, I, I, I continue to try to do it on my own and fail almost every single time. But when I give it to God, stuff shows up that I would never have even thought was a possibility. And I encourage you over time to have the faith, particularly when you're trying to do something you know God wants you to do, to just give it to God. And I say this to you without even knowing, because you guys are very generous with your time, your commitment, your resources. But I want to say this to you is uh, as you're pursuing uh, growth, I mean, Joe and I, we, we vision every Tuesday and we already see multiple services and I, I keep always nodding him to say, we could replicate this in another community. You guys got something great. Maybe I could, you know, drag some of the old folks that show up wherever we go to. So uh, we could be a pretty good team. Um, and we, we joke about it. I, I think Joe's busy enough now. He doesn't need something extra, but we talk about it all the time. I encourage you, as I encourage Joe, give it to God and see where it goes. Uh, and then buckle up because God always goes beyond anything you could ever do. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Luke 17, verses 12 through 18. Jesus entered a village on the border of Samaria and Galilee. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance as required by law, and they called out to Jesus in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Seeing the men with leprosy, Jesus said, Go right now and show yourselves to the priests, for you have been made clean. Upon showing themselves to the priests, they were found to be free of the disease. They were indeed cleansed. One of the men previously afflicted with leprosy after seeing that he had been healed through his encounter with Jesus came back to where Jesus and the disciples were. He was praising and thanking God in a loud voice. The man threw himself down at Jesus' feet and he thanked him for his healing. The man happened to be a Samaritan. Jesus asked rhetorically in the presence of the man and his disciples, were not all ten men with leprosy healed? Where are the other nine men? Has no one returned to praise and thank God for this healing except this Samaritan. I'd like to focus on a thankful leper. 
And I, I don't like to box people according to their medical diagnosis. But it's just too long to explain it to you. But you know what I'm talking about. This week, we will again be celebrating Thanksgiving. For the U.S., we've set apart the last Thursday of November to remember all the persons who have given and supported us in our times of need and for all the hard work and sacrifice that was needed to bring about a harvest. This is hard for us to imagine in these days, providing us food for the winter. Now, if you find empty shelves getting ready for Thanksgiving, you might be able to relate to this. In our elementary schools, there, are, there will be children using markers to color pages that will be featuring turkeys and muskets and native chiefs, pumpkins, corn, pilgrims with silly buckled wide-brimmed hats and buckled black leather shoes. Now, some of us during this holiday may even remember this Thanksgiving that we're not the first tribe to live in North America. <laughs> and we may even thank God for the contributions that Native people have made throughout American history. Maybe not. As people of faith, we recognize that every day is a Thanksgiving day. We thank God for our salvation, the possibility of confessing our sins and actually receiving forgiveness, and our shared mission in the world. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Rejoice and give thanks to God always, and let your gentleness and your generosity be known by everyone. The risen Christ is always right here. We don't need to worry about anything. Instead, we are given the opportunity to lift up our prayers with praise to God and thanksgiving to Christ, letting our requests be known to a God who loves us and who sent Jesus to save us. Paul wrote, May the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guide our hearts and our minds that we might not be selfish and ungrateful. I am notorious for amplifying the scriptures. So if any of you guys are literalists and you go back and look up Philippians and look up Thessalonians, you say, that's not in there. Well, it is. I just added words to it. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for all people who love Jesus Christ. In every letter that Paul wrote to the first century congregations, he encouraged believers to give thanks, especially for the victory of God over sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's old school. So what are we to learn from this story about a thankful leper? Sometimes, not always lately, 
But sometimes I enjoy digging into the commentaries to glean a few nuggets of truth for my sermon. I once had on the south side of town, early in my ministry, a, a staff parish chair, and that was his criteria for my effectiveness. I had to come up with one thing that he hadn't already heard from all the pastors he had ever had. So I used to dig in that commentary I have, find something. It overwhelms me, all the information that are in the commentaries. There's so much that sometimes I get totally lost and forget what I was trying to preach on. That's why I don't do it all the time. But in this case, it seemed to fit. And I also know some of you are thinking about doing this. So I wanted to let you know. You can borrow those commentaries, matter of fact, anytime you want. I picked apart this story piece by piece. And the first thing I noticed was there's a geography lesson in Luke's story. Now Luke is a little loose on his geography. A lot of times it doesn't make sense and the order and the direction he's going where he's traveling doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in this particular time, the references to the border and the references to the village make some sense. They're significant. They have meaning to them. First, to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples would have to avoid traveling through Samaria by keeping right on the other side of the border. First between Samaria and Galilee, and then between Samaria, Decapolis, and, and Perea. Just across the Jordan River, all the way to Judea, until they make their way to Jerusalem. Now those of you who don't love geography like I do, Okay, fine. Yeah, I could show you a map, but truth is, they didn't like to go through Samaria. Jewish tradition and practices of separating Samaritans were notorious and horrible. Like this racist tradition, policy and practices pointing out that this grateful leper happened to be a Samaritan was a major challenge in the work of the day. Kind of like what we're doing and what Joe's doing through gain here in the Grandview area. Now, second thing, the 10 men with leprosy would not have been allowed to be in a village. By law, they would have been segregated outside of the limits of the village. And they were required to scream out if anyone approached them, unclean, unclean. They talk about maintaining social distancing. It was extreme back then. And they had to do it to avoid punishment, even death, by the authorities. Now these ten men screamed out to Jesus. They didn't scream out, unclean, unclean. But they said, Master, Rabbi, have mercy on us. We need to read between the lines a little bit sometimes. Have mercy on us, I believe, represented a direct request for healing. How do you think they wanted mercy to show up? Just give them a nice little thanksgiving, a little wave, and out the door? No way. Luke points out to us that Jesus not only heard the men, he recognized their need right off the bat. Now, following the ge geography lesson we have in Luke, we are gifted with a social work orientation. Any social workers here? 
I'm taking, I'm kind of loose on this, you know. Uh, it, it wouldn't really qualify, I know. But uh, social work orientation, Jesus saw the need of the ten men for healing. He acted after seeing the need to do something that would help. That's what sets social workers apart from all the rest of us. We all see these big black hole problems in society, and we go, man, we ought to do something about that. We might even adopt a child 47 cents a day or, or a dog or something, not social workers. They commit their whole lives to jumping in these dark holes and doing something about it. Luke had two other stories that I think tie into this really well. One is the Good Samaritan that you probably all know really well in chapter 10. The second, though, is one that's a little more obscure, but uh, incredible that's in the gospel. And that is the story about a rich man and Lazarus in heaven with Abraham in chapter 16. It's amazing. Well, in the Good Samaritan, this man was beaten near death by robbers on the road. We know the story. The priest saw the man first. What did he do? He intentionally walked by the man from the, on the other side of the road. He didn't even want to be impacted by being in the presence of this injured man. Now, there are some uh, regulations in the law of Moses that might prompt and justify this? I don't believe so. The second thing is there's a Levite, which is just signaling for us the most faithful person there is. Never misses service, you know, makes coffee. I will give you a saint certificate if you want to make coffee for me in the morning because we're the ones that make the coffee. I can't believe it. But in a way, I think it's God laughing at me. I wanted to, to run an open shelter. And the one thing I thought I'd always do is have coffee. So now God's laughing. Now you're making the coffee. It's really good. So pride, it's a terrible thing. The Samaritan, it says in the scripture, while traveling on the same road as the priest and the Levite, saw the injured man. And when he saw the injured man, he was moved with compassion. He got off his horse. He went to the man to help him. He bandaged the man's wounds. They have a whole lot about pouring wine on it. I don't know that that's truly a disinfectant, so I left that out. Um, he put him on his horse. He took him to the inn. And eventually he paid the innkeeper to provide this man long-term care. The Good Samaritan saw the injured man, recognized the immediate needs, chose to help the man beyond normal expectation, expecting no reward in return for his actions. Now, in a similar way, maybe the dark shadow behind this story, Luke used this story of a rich man and Lazarus to point out to us, the reader, how the poor, the hungry, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for right answers, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, how those people that Jesus lifted up in the Sermon on the Mount will actually be blessed, and how the rich and the ungrateful 
and the selfish and the insensitive and the powerful and the popular, the bullies, how they will be judged. The rich man in Luke's story and in Jesus' lesson did not even notice Lazarus who was begging literally at his gate. Where the rich man was comforted by his wealth and luxury on earth, poor Lazarus was comforted in heaven. Not only did the rich man not see Lazarus, not recognize that he had needs, not respond to help him at his own gate in any way, but the rich man was so self-involved, while being tormented in hell, he still expected Lazarus to serve him by returning to earth to warn his brothers. Abraham had no patience with this rich man in the story. One thing I love about Jewish tradition, and when the Jewish uh, Hebrew Bible sneaks into our New Testament stories, is they don't mince words. They just lay it out there, the good, the ugly, the, the things that break your heart. And Abraham said to the rich man, your five brothers had the teaching of Moses and the prophets, they should read it. They should understand, they should listen and learn from them, and then they would know what they must do and what's going to happen if they don't do what God wants them to do. And the rich man <laughs> replied, they won't follow the teaching of Moses. They won't understand what the prophets are trying to say. But if someone came back to them from the dead, then they might listen and they might repent of their sin. The final word of Abraham in this story, which just, I just love the directness of it. If your brothers cannot learn from Moses and can't learn from the prophets, neither will they be convinced to change their ways, even if it were to see a man like Lazarus warning them who was raised from the dead. We got a geography lesson. We got a social work orientation. We got a commission to see the needs of other people and to act. Sometimes act even when we don't know what to do. Now, this is a perfect season to bring this up. And as preachers, you can always count on us to do that. On the days you feel most comfortable, those will be the days when we say something like I'm getting ready to say right now. Sometimes we busy ourselves so much, especially on the holidays, with things like preparing Thanksgiving dinner, or in my case, watching football on the couch with family, or buying gifts for Christmas. Can't believe Black Friday or whatever in the world that is. I, I don't even like the chaos of going in, at night to shop sometime, much less with all those people. We fail to see persons in need that are all around us, that are literally at our gate. I used to work at the state office tower downtown for the Board of Regents, and 
I would go early so I could have breakfast at Bernie's Bagels. So I walked by all the little uh, nooks and crannies of downtown, and there were always people there sleeping o- over grates, any place where there might be some warmth. And at 7 o'clock, poof, they disappear because the police come and make sure they're not on those benches, they're not in those corners, they're not at the driveways. They're here every day with us. Not only do we not slow down enough to see them, but we look at them and how much they need, and we go, that's impossible. That's too big. There's no way I can do that. Or sometimes I know as a pastor, I'll say, well, Columbus is a big city. There's got to be an agency that takes care of that. Food, shelter, health care, mental illness. Sure, there's an agency. They all need help, right? They all need help. We find reasons. We find justifications, just like the priest and the Levite, for not responding to those needs. We're too busy. It's too big. Some people even say, you know that guy that's begging on the corner? He drove up there in a Cadillac. I hear that so much, it just makes me sick. I go, yeah, oh yeah, sure, I'm glad that. Can you imagine spending all day sitting on a street corner asking for money? I hope he has enough money for a Cadillac because that's the hardest thing I think you can ever do. My daughter worked in downtown Cleveland as a lawyer, still does now, and when I'd go visit her and I'd walk to her law office, she said, Dad, don't talk to all the people. And they'd come up to me and, you know, they'd be panhandlers there at that public square. And I'd go, man, you could be a great salesman. I said, you're articulate, you're bright. You're... And I said, you want me to check it out, see if I can find a used car dealer that needs somebody to sell? And they just look at me, give me some money. I said, all right, I'm not giving you any money, but next time I come through, let me know. Sometimes we're too busy to see. Sometimes we're too busy to act. Sometimes we're too busy to show our thanksgiving to God by helping other people. Now, what I have learned about you guys is you are engaged in helping your neighbors. We are too, but I think some of our folks have gotten a little crusty in the edges like me, and we may gripe at them while we're actually providing money or giving them a ride or, or taking them out for a meal, but we care. That's what we're all about. Uh, and we need, I mean for this to be encouragement, not conviction. There's no greater need than Thanksgiving and Christmas for anybody, including folks that have recently experienced divorce or loss. We have divorce care here on Thursday night, and I'm praying for all seven of these guys and and women because this is the toughest season ever. There are folks right next to you. They don't have to be homeless. They don't have to be addicted. They don't have to be recently out of prison that need your help. There are many that are lonely. There are many that don't even um, have provisions for Thanksgiving meal. Help them out any way you can. And the biggest way is See them. See them. Let them know you care about what they're dealing with. And sometimes admit, I don't know what to do. But if you'll help me, we'll figure it out together. Remember how our gospel lesson ends with Jesus saying, 
to each of us as readers. We're not ten men and women who happen to have leprosy healed. Where are the other nine? Why have they not returned to praise and thanks God, thank God for daily healing? Why is it only this Samaritan, this outsider, this person that most of us don't even see during the week? How come it's only the Samaritan that is thankful? Let us pray. Glorious God, you're the source of all of our joy and all of our hope. Today we wish to offer our praise and our thanksgiving for all you do for us. Please empower us as redeemed and forgiven children to rejoice in singing your praises and in giving you thanks today and every future day. Please grant by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit that what we sing with our lips we may believe in our hearts and what we believe in our hearts we may practice in our lives so that being doers of your word and not hearers only, we may serve your purpose all the days we have on earth and when we receive eternal life, continue in your service forevermore. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.